The reading of God's word comes to us from Proverbs chapter 13. Savoring our time in Proverbs together. Each verse is a precious morsel you could chew on and digest for an entire week. So we're taking them a bit by bit. Continuing this evening, afternoon, Proverbs 13, we'll read verses 16 through 20. This is God's word. In everything, the prudent acts with knowledge, but a fool flaunts his folly. A wicked messenger falls into trouble, but a faithful envoy brings healing. Poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is honored. A desire fulfilled is sweet to the soul, but to turn away from evil is an abomination to fools. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the command companion of fools will suffer harm. Thus far, the reading of God's word. I invite you to join me in prayer as we ask God's blessing upon his word read and preached. Our God, we come and we seek your face as you have welcomed us and have gathered us once more in your presence to hear your word and to gaze upon the excellencies of our king and to rehearse your mighty deeds, uh, to your glory, O Lord, and to our great good. And so we seek that portion of knowledge and wisdom which comes from you, O Lord. And we ask that you would guard us from folly, from the foolishness which continues to crouch at the door of our hearts, Father. I pray you would make me a faithful messenger, Father, and that your words would become healing, that you would keep us from the folly of ignoring instruction. You teach us, O Lord, to heed your reproof and your building up. So we ask, Lord, that as you have taught us to seek these things from your hand, uh, that you would uh, grant them to us, uh, even now as your word is read and preached. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Continuing our time in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, you can find the relevant questions on page 973 in your hymnal. I believe they're on the white insert as well. Um, our time in the seventh commandment. I'll read uh, the seventh commandment first. Uh, this is God's word. Uh, you shall not commit adultery. Uh, thus ends God's word. And then we'll take up question 71 and 72 once more. What is required in the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment requireth the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity in heart, speech, and behavior. And then question 72, what is forbidden in the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment forbiddeth all unchaste thoughts, words, and actions. We've mentioned a particular dark scene in the novel Anna Karenina uh, when late in the novel uh, Levin, uh, whom you've come to love, uh, meets Anna. 
uh, whom you've come to pity. And Anna is thrilled to see that she has a certain effect on Levin. Uh, her beauty and her charm, uh, she observes, are drawing him unto herself. And thus she begins to strengthen her charms and her beauties, directing them to that end. She's thrilled by it. She delights in it, this power that she wields. It's not because she has any particular desire for leaven, but rather it is a thrill to see that she has such an effect upon others. The novel, interestingly, opens with a similar scene, but from the male perspective, Vronsky, Anna's eventual lover, enjoys making young women fall for him. He views it as harmless, simply the way of young men and young women. But as he exerts his charms, flaunts his wealth, displays his good looks, showcases his impeccable decorum, he delights that he finds beautiful women falling into his orbit. Poor Kitty becomes the victim of this male version of what Anna is. It's a dark register of our life together, isn't it? I'm judging from some of your faces that this is not unfamiliar to you. We enjoy, we enjoy exerting that type of attraction upon one another. We use all sorts of different means to it. There's physical charms. There's social intellectual charms. There's money. There's accomplishments. There's all sorts of different avenues which we marshal to exert such an attracting power upon others. It seems to be an outworking of that vestige of that great plunge into sin, which is characterized as you will be as God. For what does it mean to bring people into your orbit other than bringing them to worship you as you would a God. Have as many as possible fall under your power. Acknowledge your excellencies. The seventh commandment shines a light on our temptation to marshal all of these things in the realm of physical and sexual attraction. But it also begins to highlight something that kind of goes unnoticed here about the beauty of chastity, the beauty of purity, the beauty of purity in soul and in body, it highlights for us that not only does chastity and purity of soul and body honor God, but it's a very real expression of love for one another, of care and honor bestowed upon brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says as much when he writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you before and solemnly 
warned you. Anna and Vronsky cared nothing for Levin and Kitty in those exchanges. They were content to reduce them to play things for their own amusement. Levin and Kitty had nothing of the stamp of the image of God upon them as they were viewed by Anna and Vronsky. They were objects. That's as much honor as they received in their sight. It didn't matter that Kitty was devastated. Her life was destroyed for a period after that great deception. It didn't matter that Levin had a family whom he loved as Anna was content to exert her powers over him. None of it mattered. All that mattered was self-indulgence and the reduction of others in honor to serve the purposes of self Beloved, make no mistake, those are our dark hearts. Beloved, make no mistake, our corrupt desires would lead us to view and to treat one another in the same way. It's striking that as the seventh commandment sets forth our call, it highlights not only our call to preserve our own chastity, but to take into account the well-being of others as we conduct ourselves, comport ourselves present ourselves. Once more, we grapple with the darkness of our hearts, content to reduce objects, others to objects for our sinful desires or perverse self-indulgences. But that stands in stunning contrast to our king, does it not? It stands in stunning contrast to the way that he views others, the way he views us. I can't imagine how refreshing it must be for a woman who has been subject to constant objectification to know that the king never looks at her that way. The king sees her as a daughter of the most high and thus worthy of all honor. I think men can be objectified in the same way. Maybe it's a little bit different. Certainly I've never been at least privy to the expectations that sort of govern male strength with the intensity that they govern expectations now, it seems like now, more than I was when I was growing up, like a man is expected to be almost a model in terms of his body shape and accomplishments and all of these things. I think it's remarkably refreshing to Know that the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't look at us like that. You're not valuable insofar as you are the epitome of physical strength. You're not a brother to the Lord insofar as you are a paragon of wealth and success. That's refreshing, is it not? To know that he is not ashamed to call you brother, not based upon those things, but because he has set his love upon you. It's remarkable to consider the purity of our king, which we've come back to time and time again. Our looks and our touches so frequently destroy, defile, devour both ourselves and others. Not so our king. The touch of our king, the sight of our king, the gaze of our king ennobles, beloved. It ennobles. That's powerful. It cleanses, beloved. That's powerful. 
This once more, we're struck by the excellencies of our king, but we're also struck by the excellencies of our God who saw it fit not to leave us in such filth. You heard it in this passage. You are no longer like the Gentiles who do not know God, who are just subject to their passions like animals. Once upon a time you were. Once upon a time we were. Pre-grace we were. Consider it. I don't know what your particular response, your particular experience pre-grace was, but animal-like probably resonates with a lot of us. Subject to base desires without even a blink. What does Paul say? God has not called you for impurity, but in holiness. Blessed be his name. He didn't leave us in the midst of such filth. Make no mistake, we still contend with that filth, but he has removed us from that filth dominating us. He's removed us from such a position where we exercise that filth with impunity. (laughs) Almost celebrating it. Like Anna. Ooh, look at the power I have. Like Vronsky. Ooh, look at the conquests I've marshaled. Bless his name. He saved us from that, beloved. May he grant us the eyes to see the heinousness from which he saved us and the loveliness into which he marshals us. Let's continue to reflect upon the seventh commandment together. Two points tonight. First, the seventh commandment indicts all of our sexual immorality. All of it. From adultery to unnatural lusts. The Bible speaks plainly about sexual sin. It speaks plainly about it. The seventh commandment comes right out and addresses one of the most blatant forms of it, adultery. Make no mistake, that's what it's most immediately concerned with. The Lord hates adultery. It's dreadful. I mean, it's not hard to see why. Promises made to one another, broken. Promises made with God as a witness, broken. The witness is despised. Truth is is despised. Faithfulness is destroyed. The poignancy with which this particular sin lands is evident in the fact that it is the most common metaphor for spiritual infidelity, for spiritual unfaithfulness. There's something about it which accurately communicates the heinousness of breaking faith with God. That's how dark that sin is. But it's not just that. You can hear, as we just read, it's all sexual immorality. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor and not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles. You don't need to look far into the annals of history to see that the sexual ethics of the pagan kingdoms were shameful beyond speaking. Go look, Caligula. (laughs) Go look at even the sexual mores of Hammurabi. You see there the sexual ethic of what it looked like to know not God, know not the holy and living God, know not the 
purity of truth and light and to comport oneself in this way. Paul very much highlights the sexual component of our existence in, our, in an indictment of our false worship in Romans 1, does he not? We might be tempted to think, well, what does one have to do with the other? But in the biblical thing, they hold together, partly because pagan practice very often incorporated sort of sexual rites and rituals, partly. I mean, you read Jeremiah and what's going on there. It's very plain that it blurs the line between metaphor and reality in terms of pagan worship. But also because it's incredibly powerful, is it not? There's something strikingly poetic about the fact that those who refuse to worship the true and living God are content to worship his image in enslaving themselves in sexual lust to one another. There's the dark poetry of Romans 1, where sort of the embodiment of self-worship is homosexuality. It's the closest that you can get to worshiping yourself while still taking another to yourself. It's dark, beloved. Scripture pulls no punches. It's dark, but it speaks of it with light and truth to shed light on the reality of our fallen condition. These acts, beloved Scripture says, are sins against God and are destructive one towards another, make no mistake. And mark how that flies in the face of contemporary apologists for a sort of free sexual ethic. Once upon a time, the apology used to read, there's really no harm in any of this as long as they're consenting adults. There's no harm in any of this. Who are you to say that this is harmful? They're adults. Let them do what they want. You can mark that the apology has subsequently changed. That was a rather timid apology, right? Like, just let well enough be. Now the apology is not content to say there's no harm, but rather says we must celebrate. I mean, there's a really interesting glimpse into the nature of sin in that. The brazenness now of the defense is that this sexual promiscuity must be celebrated. It must be embraced. It must be delighted in. And if you don't, you're going to be destroyed. Beloved, sin is not content just to be admitted. Sin desires to be admired. Do you understand? That is a truism about the nature of sin. Sin does not simply want a place. It wants the throne. Do you understand? There's a lesson about our sin in that unless we go to war with our sin, our sin will be striving to dominate us and will not rest until it does. Paul is plain, beloved. Sexual sin is far from harmless. It's far from harmless. You hear this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 6. Let no one transgress and wrong his brother in all these things. The wrong is done against another in the face of sexual immorality. He has all sexual immorality in mind there, from adultery to unnatural lust. And what does he say? Now, certainly it's a sin against God, but what Paul profiles is it's a sin against one another. 
Certainly that's playing in adultery. <laughs> but he doesn't content himself just with that sin. He says all sexual immorality is a sin against one another. Paul says similarly, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. You harm others. You harm yourself. But here, mark how good our enemy is at what he does. When he can get you to actively desire and pursue your own destruction, he showcases the masterfulness of his abilities. When he can get you to actively pursue and desire your own destruction and the destruction of others, he shows that he has quite a bit of ability. Don't underestimate that. Don't overestimate it, but don't underestimate it. Isn't that what he did in the garden? Eve saw that the fruit was pleasant to the eye. How could something so plainly pleasant be harmful? Make no mistake, I mean, sexual morality has a layer of pleasantness to it. You're never going to convince anyone otherwise. If you try to convince anyone otherwise, they're going to think you are ridiculous. And you are. That layer of pleasantness is part of the grand bait and switch. <laughs> it's not hard to see, though, if you look a little bit closer. Adultery destroys lives, it destroys lives. Look at Anna. It's convenient for me to reference a novel here, and I trust you know that Anna is a novel, but it's also true for thousands of people, many of whom you might know. It doesn't benefit me to name actual people whom I've seen go through this. It's easier to reference Anna. Do you understand that? Adultery destroys lives. She had a child. She left him. She had a good husband, left him. She wrought her own destruction as she was convinced she was pursuing her happiness. Dreadful. It's not hard to see. Fornication. Sex outside the safety of marriage. The trust of marriage. It fosters shame. A hundred percent, it fosters shame. One hundred percent, it fosters shame. It awakens appetites which inevitably lead to the devouring of others. It leaves deep scars. Women feeling like they've been used. Men trained in objectifying women. How could anyone in their right mind argue that that's harmless? They've never counseled the women who struggle with plain issues of self-worth because they feel dirty at a fundamental level. Because they bought into the lie. Or men who struggle trying to break that pattern that they've ingrained into their lives of objectifying women. 
saying, I hate this. I can't believe I've sowed to this for so long that this pattern is this strong. No one in their right mind would say it's harmless. That's what Paul says. You weren't in your right minds. They're not in their right minds. Now we're in our right minds. It's not hard to see how the destabilization of society proceeds from this. It's remarkably elegant, the counsel scripture gives. Let the marriage bed be held in honor. (laughs) So simple, so elegant, so beautiful. This myth of costless sex Free love. It doesn't pass the sniff test. It's dreadfully costly in actual fact. And it's so plain. It's so plain. Remarkably, even non-Christians are starting to wake up to this. I've been struck by a number of sexual, secular pundits, particularly women, interestingly, who have basically said, you know, we actually bought a lie. That like our good was to be found in this sexual autonomy. Like actually we, we bought that lie and it's not. It's not good. But Mark, how we live in this culture, right? We've admitted some of these basic lies. When you're a child, you think that everything that your parents call you to leave off doing is somehow a wonderful thing. And like, your whole life depends upon doing that thing. Don't stick a screwdriver into the outlet. I bet that's awesome. <laughs> I'm going to do that. Like, don't touch the oven. I'm gonna. <laughs> and I bet it's pretty cool. No, it's hot. Our own dark hearts begin to buy these lies. We think that, don't we? Oh, my, my, my good is to be found in... Sowing these wild oats. Trying to speak obliquely on purpose. And the point here is we'd be fools to downplay the potency of those lies. We'd be fools to downplay that. We'd be fools not to take into account that we live in a certain time and place. God doesn't forbid us from sexual morality because he's a fun killer. I mean, it's it's as crass at that as that sometimes, isn't it? Like, he just doesn't want me to have any fun. What do we see? We see God's goodness on display. We see his blatant goodness on display in keeping us from a rank indulgence of a base and animal nature. And so we're postured once more to stand in awe of the king who came to save such defiled sinners. Maybe you know something of that feeling, feeling dirty at your fundamental level. Maybe you know something of the shame of having reduced others to mere objects to slake your lust upon. If you feel something of the dreadfulness, rejoice because Christ stood in front of such sinners. 
He met one in John 4, the woman at the well. She was such a sinner. And what did he do? He put himself forward as living water. Water that cleanses. Water which satisfies. Water which will always satisfy because it never leaves or forsakes. Beloved, our king came to save such defiled wretches. Make no mistake, it is a heinous defilement. But Christ is that good, beloved. His purity is that powerful, beloved. It cleanses at that level, beloved. And it shows a better way. A way of viewing one another, not as objects, but as fellow image bearers, as co-heirs of the grace of life. This is what Paul says. He says, you were the sexually immoral. You were the adulterers. You were men who practiced homosexuality. Make no mistake, those men will not inherit the kingdom of God, but such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. He didn't come just to save from speakable sins, beloved. He came to save from those sins which cause great shame even when we think about speaking of them. That's our king. I think there's still a place to ask the Lord to work a humility in our hearts as we reflect upon pasts that he no longer imputes to our account, but are certainly true evidence of the reality of sin, are they not? True evidence of the reality of heinousness, corruption, which remains, but by his grace doesn't reign. There's a humility that that ought to foster such that the next time we see someone, our first thought isn't shun such a sinner, but it's such was I. And yet I've been shown a grace that is so powerful that none are beyond its grasp. None are beyond its saving power. Can you see that, beloved? But not just that, it reaches to the very depth, which is the second and last observation I want to make. It's not just concerned with what we do with our bodies. It's concerned with what comes forth from our hearts. You could be technically chaste your whole life and yet be a fountain of filth. That's what Scripture teaches. The Westminster Larger states that the Seventh Commandment forbids all unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections. It's very clearly referencing Christ's teaching in Matthew 7. Whoever looks on a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery with her in his heart. And then later he says, for out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications. Our lusts, this corruption fueling our imaginations, our thoughts, and our purposes is laid bare by this 
commandment. We're to take no solace in the fact that I haven't committed adultery in actual matter of fact. I've refrained from the actual act of sexual immorality. The commandment goes farther than that. It says, well, what about your thoughts? What about your imaginations? What about your purposes? In David's great penitential psalm coming off of a sin of this very nature, the adultery, the murder, which he facilitated as he killed Uriah and took Bathsheba to himself. Psalm 51 is his great penitential psalm as the Lord in love lays him low. And what does he say? You'll see the imagery there of cleansing, of washing, of purity being poured out on him because he knows himself to be unclean, to be dirty, to be defiled. And all of the language about cleansing comes to a climax with a cry for a clean heart. Created me a clean heart. All of our moral efforts to restrain the body, to grow in temperance, will come to nothing if they are not the true workings in faith of a new heart. There's a lot of people that have come to this conclusion that it's probably not best to just take any woman you want, hook up with as many men as you can. A lot of people have come to that conclusion. They've marshaled all sorts of evidence for why they shouldn't do that. I'm fascinated by this, particularly in the health and wellness community. There's like this whole strand of research about why you should abstain, essentially. That sort of moral reform is not what we're talking about here. It's replacing one version of selfishness with another. It's replacing one form of corruption with another. Now, you can argue that there's a relative benefit. I'm not saying that ah, it's all the same. Like, hook up with as many people as you want or, like, refrain from doing that because it's actually a, a physically better option. There's a relative benefit to doing the one and not the other. But the point here is that's just the outworking of the heart. And unless there's a clean heart, unless there's a heart that's bathed in purity, unless innocence and chastity as a product of eternity, love, unless love has taken hold of, unless these strivings are being set forth as out of love. They're nothing and they will come to nothing. Christ says this constantly in Matthew. Make the tree good and the fruit will be good. So on the one hand, we can rejoice that God keeps many of us from the full flowering of our corruption. And there is reason to be grateful for that. Make no mistake. But as Christians, we're also not deceived. We look at the root of what causes those sins. And we rejoice that there is one with an axe that can be laid to that root, beloved. Human beings can, to a large degree, reform behavior. Like with enough willpower, with enough external motivation, some remarkable reforms in behavior can and have taken place. 
Only one can make a heart new, beloved. Only one can operate at the level of the soul, cleansing conscience and creating pure desires, beloved. I trust you know who that is. The king who excels Arthur. (laughs) So we can give thanks that there is new creation grace. Make no mistake, participation is hard. It's hard. It's not easy. It's not cheap grace. But it exists. And that's hopeful. Is it not? Think about the alternative. We can also be humbled at the tenacity of remaining sin. Again, talk about this constantly. To rightly consider man, you have to consider him both according to a forensic and an organic coordinate. When Paul says the one who sows to the flesh from the flesh reaps corruption, the one who sows to the spirit reaps eternal life, he's attuning us to that organic cord. And if you've been sowing to the objectification of women your entire life, if you've been sowing into I find my identity into how many men I can make want me and take your whole life, that's not a pattern that's easily broken because we are organic creatures and a certain momentum in that direction is very difficult to arrest. So marvel at the tenacity of remaining sin. Marvel at the wisdom of God and that he is pleased to allow us to live and exist for so long With that experience, John Newton constantly said that, unless I was convinced that God was overruling this for good, I would be undone. So powerful is that reality of remaining sin. Paul says flesh goes toe-to-toe with the Spirit, beloved. But mark that we're not left without recourse. That's what Paul says here. It's an earnest glimpsing of the beauty of holiness, an earnest glimpsing of the beauty of purity. Paul opens 1 Thessalonians 4. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Consider how much encouragement there is in that. That he's pleased to place us in Christ. That he's pleased to shape us in a new pattern of life. The fact that by faith in Christ we can please God, that alone is just huge. Isn't it? It's massive in terms of its motivation. But then encouragement, just as you're doing, that there's, there's stumbling strides being made. Not perfect. He doesn't say, hey, you've all, you've all made it. You've all mastered this. Go ahead, put down the weaponry, celebrate. He says, just as you're doing, do so more and more. He says, hang in there, fight the good fight. Keep pressing on. The captain has you well secured. The battle is well worth the effort. And rejoice that in the final analysis, 
Darkness gives way to light. That's the final point to make benefit of. Can you yearn for the day when it's light all in all? You see Christ. And there's a sense in which that hunger and thirst for righteousness begins to be satisfied as you see there's one, there is one. There's one who's not like the rest of us. There's one who's so far superior to the rest of us that it's not even fair to compare us to him. There's a righteous one. There's a holy one. At last. But then know that the hunger and the thirst isn't just to see him, it's to be like him, beloved. And that he's promised that on the day that he returns, that's what will be. You feel the ache for that day? Feel the longing for that day? For the day when we see him as he is and in that moment we become like him. When this remaining sin becomes the vestige of a bad dream and we're bathed in light through and through. It's going to be a good day. Mm-hmm. Press on until it's today. Let's pray. Mm-hmm. Sustain us, O oh Lord, as we come in the light of your truth. Lead us, guide us, uphold us, convict us, Lord but only to build us up in the assurance of your love. Be pleased to do these things. Guard us, Lord, for we are beset on many sides. We ask in Christ's name, amen.